Good morning. How are we all doing? Doing good? All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you so much for your salvation. Got it. We can't even begin to express all of what is captured in that word, salvation, eternity, dwelling with you in your presence for all of time, an absolute blessing, an absolute joy. God, what a blessing you have given us, Lord, that you would make us sons of the God Most High. Father, we praise you for that. In your son's name, amen. All right, so, um, you know, you can tell a lot about what a culture believes by listening to their stories and their songs, right? And if you look at, if you, look at you know, the movies, the American movies and American songs, you really, it really says a lot about what our culture really believes, right? Which most of the time is pretty kind of whack, right? And, and I think sort of the classic example is The Wizard of Oz. And some of you are like, oh, don't go messing with my Wizard of Oz, man. That is like a classic. But the Wizard of Oz, I mean, the premise of the Wizard of Oz is that, you know what? If you need smarts, you can find it in yourself, right? The Tin Man, at the end of this story, where does he find his intelligence? The guy just gives him a certificate. But the bottom line is, actually, the Tin Man is hard, isn't it? Straw Man. See, I got my culture all mixed up already. Start over. Start over? Okay. <laughs> so, so they find it in themselves, yeah, and 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 I think that you know the thematic song of the story is really thematic of the way we think as a culture. Somewhere over the rainbow, right? Somewhere over the rainbow is salvation. You know, somewhere over the rainbow, I I I dreamed a dream I heard in a lullaby, right? Somewhere there's a dream. Somewhere. Out there, we're going to find our dreams, you know, and all that we hope for will finally come true somewhere over the rainbow. But is that what Scripture teaches? Obviously not. So let's, let's take a look at what Scripture teaches. We're going back to Romans, Romans 10. And we'll go right after it. Starting in Romans 10, verse 1, Paul starts off and says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who's the them? Well, in order to know the who the them is, let's just jump up a little bit to just before that verse. I'm going to go up to 9, verse 30. Paul's saying, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Paul's continuing the same theme that he's, just, he's been beating this drum all the way through the letter. And the theme is, look, you know what? The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. Right? And Israel tried to achieve righteousness by doing the law, but they could never achieve it. Right? And in fact, Paul says, you know what? All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who's righteous, right? And they can't ever get there by doing the works of the law because they can never do the law perfectly. And he contrasts that against the gospel, which is, you know what? If we believe in our heart that God 
raise Jesus from the dead and confess with our mouth that he is Lord, we will be saved. In other words, if we put our faith and our hope in Christ, we will be saved. And that's been the ongoing message all the way through Romans. And he's just going to come right back to that message. And he's coming back in the message in the context of talking about the ethnic Israel. You know, it's like, well, if the Gentiles, if the whole world is saved by faith, well, where does that leave ethnic uh, Israel? Does that mean God's, God's word in some way has failed earlier in chapter 9? Has God's word failed? Because didn't God promise ethnic Israel, make all these promises to them of salvation? So what about them? So Paul's continuing in that context and says, again, going back to chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning ethnic Israel, is that they may be saved. Think about the irony of this for a moment. We're talking about ethnic Israel, God's chosen people, the apple of God's eye, right? And yet, they're not saved. That's a lot of ramifications. And he's going to develop that further in in verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So here's a people who have religious fervor, and yet they're not saved. Earlier in Romans, Paul said, you know what? Well, is there any advantage to being a Jew then? And he says, yeah, of course there's an advantage to being a Jew. The Jews have the oracles of God. The Jews have the word of God. There's a great advantage to being a Jew because the Jews have been given God's promises. They have God's word. So here's a religious people that are fervent in their religion that have God's word, and yet they're not saved. Think about that. Think about that for us. Does that, you know, does that mean you could, go, you could go to church your whole life? That you could have your Bible sitting there on your shelf, maybe even on your nightstand, maybe you even read it, and yet not be saved? Yeah. That's, what, that's what's going on here. That's the implication of that. And these guys, I mean, the, the practicing ethnic Jewish people who are practicing the Mosaic Law and trying to gain righteousness by doing the law, I mean, these guys are working it. You know, it's not just a casual investment. They are are zealous. They are zealots, right? But not from knowledge, right? Have you ever run across someone who is zealous about something but not from knowledge? Pastor Robert, for example. He's, (laughs) he's, He's zealous for the cowboys, right? But some of us would say, well, that's not based on knowledge, though. He has a zeal for the cowboys, but it's not really based on knowledge. <laughs> I got to be, I shouldn't be, I'm kind of unwise to pick on the pastor, right? Because, I mean, payback can be tough, right? So, but, so the, it's not about your zeal. It's not about how much you're into it, Right? It's, it's about the knowledge. Well, the knowledge of what? Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. It's not startling. Ignorant of the righteousness of God. Here are people who have God's word and are doing the law, practicing it as hard as they, as they can, and they're ignorant of God's righteousness. And seeking, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's exactly what happens. When you try to earn God's righteousness by doing the law, A, you can't do it, 
And because you can't do it, what you wind up doing is you start creating your own definition of what righteousness is, right? You set the bar to whatever your standard is, not to what God sets the standard to, but whatever your standard is, then that's righteousness. And, of course, Jesus came up against that constantly with the, with the Pharisees, right? Pharisees says, well, how come you guys, you know, your disciples, they don't wash, you know, they don't do the ceremonial washing, they don't wash the outside of the cup. And Jesus says, you guys are all about washing the outside of the cup. I'm talking about what's on the inside of the cup. You know, you're all about the outside and doing all this religious behavior. I'm talking about where your heart is, right? And so when, you try, when you're trying to earn God's favor and earn God's righteousness, you're, you're going to become all about the outside because your heart is wicked and corrupt and selfish and broken. And you know what? You can't do anything about that. You can't fix that. So you just try to clean up, clean up the outside, right? And that's exactly what the, the, the trap that the nation is, Israel has continuously from, from the get-go, from Adam and Eve all the way through the whole history, that's the ongoing trap that many uh, continue to fall into. Verse 4, and this is such a profound verse. Really, I think this is a key verse. Verse 4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, Christ is the end. That, that word, English word translated end, the Greek word is the telos. And really, the Greek word and the English word, they both function the same way. They both have kind of a dual, two possible meanings. Uh, in, in the English word end, end could mean, you know, the end of time, the end of the quarter. You know, it's... There's one minute left in the fourth quarter, and Cowboys are losing again. Sorry, Robert. I just can't resist it. <laughs> I can't resist it. Uh, but, um, so that's the time sense of that word end. But there's another sense in which the end means the goal, the aim, the, the fullness, the, the, the destination, right? It can mean either thing. And the Bible actually teaches both of those. The Bible teaches that Christ is the consummation, the fullness, the end, the goal of righteousness. It also teaches that Christ is the end, and temp, temp, temporaneously, meaning Christ is the end of righteousness in time. Okay, so it can go either way. In this context, I would lean towards Paul's addressing Christ as being the end of righteousness in a time sense, so that when you put your faith in Christ and you come and you, you're regenerated by it through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is the end of the law for you in terms of your righteousness. Meaning, the moment you receive Christ and you're made righteous before God, you no longer need the law to be righteous before God. You are fully righteous. Okay, It is the end of the law uh, for righteousness. Okay? This is a very profound idea. Think about, think about the ramifications of this. So if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, that means God sees you from that moment on as absolutely righteous. Christ has taken your sin upon himself, and he's imputed to you. He's put on you his righteousness. What God sees is, your, is Christ's righteousness, and you are fully righteous in Christ. And there is nothing you can do to improve on that righteousness. Okay? 
So that means once you're a believer, you can't improve on or enhance or grow further in terms of your righteousness before God. So when you get that feeling like, oh man, if I don't do a quiet time, then you know, God's going to hate me and, and I'm going I'm to be less righteous before him, that's a lie of the enemy and it's a lie of your own broken flesh. You are fully righteous before him and there is no amount of quiet time or even reading scriptures that's going to make you more righteous. Okay? You are fully righteous. So what are you saying, John? We're, just, we're done? We don't need to read scriptures? We don't need to, to worship anymore? Paul, Paul says a similar thing earlier. He said, well, what shall we say then? Shall we just sin all the more that grace may abound? God forbid, right? Paul says, God forbid. And the, and the reason for that is because if you truly, if, if you've really put your faith in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ and you've confessed him as your Lord, the fruit of that is that you desire him, you love him, you want to pursue him, and you continue to pursue him, and you continue to grow in your understanding and knowledge of grace and all the permutations and all the ramifications of that, and you continue in this process of sanctification. But even that process of sanctification is still based on faith. The process of sanctification is not about you learning how to do the law better. The process of sanctification is you learning how to trust Christ more. And as you learn how to trust Christ more, it becomes more part of your nature to do God's law. Which, by the way, what is God's law? God's law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. That's a heart issue, right? So as you trust Jesus and you continue to grow in that trust of Jesus, you continue to grow in your love and affection for the Lord. But that doesn't make you any more or less righteous. Okay, so, so I got new hearing aids on Friday. I have hearing aids, and that means this little microphone thing is not hooking over my ear. So I'm going to distract you all through for the next 20 minutes trying to hang this over my ear. Um, so now that I've drawn attention to it, try not to be distracted by it. Um, so this is, this is very profound, is it not? I mean, how often, how often do you find yourself going, ah, you know what, I, I'm, 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 just such, I'm just such slime. You know, and the Lord must just be so disgusted and frustrated with me. And I'm no longer, and, and by the way, in that, it may be true that the Lord is frustrated and disgusted by what you've just done or what you're doing, but it in no way diminishes your righteousness before him. Yeah. So if you're going and, and you're trying to, be disciplined and have your quiet time, or you're trying to be disciplined and share your faith with someone, or you're trying to be disciplined and doing all these religious things so that you could be more righteous before the Father, stop it, because it's not going to make you any more righteous. It will not. But rather, embrace the freedom that you have in Christ and the joy that you have in Christ, and out of that will flow works of righteousness, which is what James's point was, right? Faith without works is dead. It's not that we need works to have salvation. It's that if we have salvation by faith, it will produce works through us, right? But it won't make, the works don't make us more righteous or more holy. Amen? Makes sense? Get that? So this really goes to motivation, and I just see over and over again, myself included, 
many of us struggling with that motivation. It's like, oh, God, I know I'm supposed to do this, but you need to get out of your heart and out of your mind. I need to do this so that somehow I'll be right before you. I'll be more righteous. You know, we say all the time, we quote Scripture, be holy as I am holy. When you hear that phrase, doesn't something in you go, yeah, I need to read Scripture more. Yeah, I need to pray more. To be holy as I'm holy. Yeah, I need to do some religious exercise to be holy. That's the wrong, that's the wrong answer. When Scripture says, be holy as I'm holy, the correct answer according to the gospel that Paul's preaching is, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Therefore, I'm holy. Scripture says, be holy as I am holy. Praise God, I am holy because I've put my faith in you, Christ. That's the difference. Do you see that difference? Yeah. Okay, let's go on here. So what about the law? Law, And and Paul keeps coming back to this because Paul keeps making the point, well, you can't achieve righteousness by trying to do the works of the law. But does that mean there's something wrong with the law? Or does that mean there's something wrong or broken in the way that God has made, a, made covenant promises with ethnic Israel in terms of saying, hey, you know what? If you obey my law, you'll live. So Paul's going to touch that again briefly here in verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you could live out the law perfectly in perfect obedience and perfect love and affection for the Lord, would you need Christ's atonement? You wouldn't. You would be righteous. Just like the angels in heaven, they're righteous. They don't need Christ's atonement. They're righteous. They've never sinned against God. So if you weren't born in sin, and if you never sinned your whole life, and you just did nothing but lived out the, the law of God, you would not need Christ's atonement. Right? So theoretically, that's true. Practically, is anybody capable of, of that? Clearly not. Paul's already said, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who's capable of living up to this covenant, which is, look, if you do the law, you'll live. Right? Things will go well for you. That's true, except none of us can do it. So Paul says, but, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, so now he's going to contrast righteousness based on works with righteousness based on faith, and he's going to use this illustration, and for Paul's readers, this illustration is really like right there, right in the front of their mind. They totally get this illustration, totally makes sense to them, and he just goes on and makes his point. But for us, this illustration isn't as clear in our day and age, so to kind of help you see what helps me, the way I can, I can, it's helpful for me to understand Paul when he kind of goes into these illustrations is to kind of read the verse without the illustration and then go back, and then we'll go back and dig into that illustration and really understand what it means. So, but I want to just give you the top line. This is the idea of what Paul's saying by skipping over the illustration for a moment. So if you read, starting verse six, six, but the righteousness based on faith says, and then skip down to um, nine, the, the righteousness based on faith says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's the contrast. The contrast is there's righteousness that you can try to attain through works, through 
doing the law perfectly, or there's righteousness that you attain by faith. And Paul gives us the very specific mechanics of what that faith is, what the object of that faith is. The object of that faith is Christ. And, and, and the premise of that faith is that if we believe that God raised him from the dead, and if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, we will be saved, meaning we will be made fully righteous. In that moment, we're fully righteous, right? And the rest of, the, rest of our lives, we're just trying to figure out what that means, <laughs> We're trying to apply that to day-to-day living. But we are fully righteous. You know, we spend the rest of our life working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we are fully righteous in that moment. Yeah. So what is Paul's illustration here? And it is, it's incredible. <laughs> the more you dig into it, the more like, there's layers of this that are really amazing. But a, a few things i got to say, too, just in terms of how he uses the illustration. Paul's going to quote Moses. But the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, they quote it in a particular way. And it's different than the way that we quote Scripture. When we quote Scripture, we just quote chapter and verse. You know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, or whomever, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And we just quote the verse fully as it's written and give the address. That's how we quote Scripture. The New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament... They quote primarily the idea of the verse. So it's not as much about chapter and verse, the exact word. It's about the idea. Not only that, they interpret that idea in light of the revelation of Christ. So they take the idea. In this case, Paul's going to take the idea that Moses is talking about and he's actually going to grab a verse from early in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and then a verse later in Deuter- Deuteronomy. He's going to put those together, and he's going to take that idea that Moses is talking about that and interpret it in light of the revelation of Christ and what Christ has done. Make sense? So at first, when you start to study this and you, and you look at the references and you, go, and you go to what Moses is saying, it's like, well, A, it's kind of translated differently, and B, he's kind of picking and choosing different verses. How does that work? And that's the, re- and, and that's the reason for it. You've got to remember, first century Palestine, right, and, and Greece and Rome, and he's talking to Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. This is a multi- multicultural, multilingual culture, okay? And those of you who are bilingual, I think, will get this really easily. Many of us who are not won't. But when you're bilingual or even trilingual, it's not about, when you can move back and forth between those languages really easily, it's not about the exact word, it's about the idea, right? And in order to translate from one language to the other, you've got to understand the idea and then put it into that language, right? My stepdad was awesome about that, which is another. Briefly, my stepdad was fluent in German, Italian, obviously English, and Mandarin Chinese, and he could move between those languages no problem. And when I would talk to him, he would talk in terms of what's the idea, not the specific word or idiom that any one given culture understands, right? So Paul's doing the same thing here. He's, he's going, here's the idea that Moses is talking about. Here's how I'm interpreting it in light of Christ. And here's how I'm illustrating this to you, Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome in the first century. And by the way, 
the Jewish believers in the first century have a particular interpretation and understanding of what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy. So that gets thrown into the mix as well. So it's not this one-to-one kind of relationship. Okay? Enough of <sighs> hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Um, so what does he say? But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, which is early in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, who will ascend into heaven, which is a little bit later in Deuteronomy. And then he interprets that as that is to bring Christ down. So that is to bring Christ down is not the quote. It's Paul's interpretation of the idea that Moses is talking about. And the idea that Moses is talking about, and I'll just say it briefly, I won't go back there and read it, but Moses is, is, is addressing the, the ethnic Jews. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses is saying, look, don't say, don't say in your heart that this is too hard for us. You know, God's, God's promised to, to give you a promised land. He's promised you to, he's promised, made a promise to you that you're going to be able to defeat your enemies and occupy the promised land. Don't say in your heart that this is too hard for us. And then later in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, you know, you know the law. Don't think that the law is somewhere way out. Don't, don't think you've got to send somebody to heaven to bring the law back to you. And don't think that you have to go across the sea, send somebody across the sea to bring the law back to you, right? But rather, the law is right there. It's right in front of you. That's kind of the big idea of what Moses is saying. And I encourage you, look at your, your cross-references and check this out and read this later. But, but that's the, the sense of what Moses is saying, and so Paul takes that idea, interprets it as Christ, and he says, look, don't say in your heart that someone has to go to heaven and grab hold of Christ and bring him to us so that we could have righteousness. Why? Because Christ has already come, right? Christ already came from heaven, already lived his life, already preached the gospel, already died for our sins, and was already resurrected. So don't say in your heart that you need to ascend to heaven to bring Christ to you. He's already come. Right? And then he goes on and says, or who will descend into the abyss? Kind of another layer of meaning relative to the ocean. Right? There's the ocean going across the ocean to bring the law back, and then there's the abyss going down into the depths, the, the abyss. And the way Paul uses it here, into the, the realm of the dead. Don't say in your heart that we've got to send somebody into the realm of the dead to bring Christ back up from the dead. Why? Because that's already happened, right? Jesus has already been raised from the dead. So don't say in your heart you need these things to happen in order to have righteousness and salvation. But what does it say? Verse 8, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Okay, you can't get any closer than that, right? The word of righteousness, the word of salvation is in your heart and it's on your lips. It's in your very breath. It's near. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Paul, again, is interpreting this as the, the word is the gospel. The, the word is the gospel's in your heart and on your lips. And, and then he gives us the gospel in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. Right? 
So why do we struggle? Why do we mistrust that? Why do we not wake up in the morning and say, praise the Lord, I am righteous. I am holy before you, before a living God because of the finished work of Christ. I think we struggle because we still have our flesh. It's still in our sin nature that somehow we have to earn God's favor. Somehow we've got to earn God's approval. Somehow we've got to perform in order to be righteous. And Paul's saying that's contrary to the gospel. The gospel is based on the finished work of Christ. It's already done, and it's near you. It's right there with you. And all it is is a confession of faith, a confession of trust, agreeing with God that, yes, he raised Jesus from the dead, and yes, he is my Lord. That's it. And we are righteous. Continue on in uh, 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Talking about motive, our whole direction, our whole purpose, our, our, our perspective, our direction, where we're going, what we believe. For with the heart one believes and is justified. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And with the, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We confess that Jesus is our Lord. For the scripture says, everyone, remember the context here, he's talking about, well, what about ethnic Israel? Paul says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Has the word of God failed? Does somehow ethnic Israel miss salvation? No. Salvation is available to everyone, including the ethnic Jew, through faith in Christ. Whether you're an ethnic Jew or a Gentile, the path is the same, and it's confession and faith in Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. To put it in our context, whether you're the hardened criminal spending time in the penitentiary, or you're a sweet old guy or sweet old man who just has served the community their whole life, Either way, the path to to righteousness is believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing him as your Lord, and you are righteous. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what you will do. You are righteous before a holy God based on the finished work of Christ that you've entered into by faith. Our only job is to express faith. That's our job. And, we're, and we have attained righteousness through Christ's work. Just finishing the last verse we're going to touch is 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's everyone. Everyone is everyone. Anyone who has ever been saved or ever will be saved, they're saved not because of their background, not because of what they've done in their life. They're saved because they've made that confession in Christ. So if you... Um, if you don't think you've ever made that confession, the message for you this morning is, you know what? Righteousness is right here, right now, right in front of you. And it's only a step of belief, only a step of confession. And the Holy Spirit says, I've been telling you this your whole life. Stop resisting me and just agree with me and you'll be made righteous. 
Stop resisting that message and put your faith and hope and trust in it and you will be righteous forever. Is that not an awesome message? Do we, are we not given an awesome message? Next week we're going to talk about taking that message to the world. But right now, let's just ponder that truth and that reality that we have been made righteous through this simple confession of faith. And all of what that means, that means we are in. We are in the presence of God for eternity. We share in the glories of God for eternity. We share in the inheritance of Christ for eternity through the simple confession of faith. So I want to challenge you as we go into our worship time, if you haven't come to that place of faith, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day. Today's the day you go, you know what, Lord? I believe. I believe The Holy Spirit is stirring in me belief, and I believe that you've raised him from the dead. And I confess you, Lord, as my Lord. If you're already a believer, the message for this morning is you are already righteous. Quit trying to be righteous. You are righteous. Now act like it. Just walk accordingly. And as we've been saying, as Paul's been saying all the way through Romans, yeah, we're going to trip and fall and fail and mess up. But you come back to the same faith and you say, but you know what, Lord, I'm righteous in your sight because of the finished work of Christ. I confess that I've sinned. I confess that I've blown it. Get me back aligned with the reality and truth that I'm righteous before you. Right? The same, Paul says in another letter, the same faith that you had when you first believed, so now walk. It's the same faith. And not that you have to keep renewing that faith and renewing your salvation, but that when you're saved, you are righteous. And sanctification is just a process of agreeing with that. You know, and living that and walking that out. Amen? So let's, uh, let's pray. Is, is salvation... Let me ask one more question before we pray. Salvation somewhere over the rainbow? Is righteousness somewhere out there? Do we have to somehow get Christ to come back again to make us righteous? No. He's, the work is done. The last thing he said on the cross, it is finished. It is done. It's not somewhere over the rainbow where all of our dreams are going to come true. It's here now, today. And this morning may be your first confession of that reality. It may be your 10,000th confession of that reality. But that first confession made you fully righteous before him. Let's pray. Lord, I just praise you. I thank you, God, for your love, for your salvation. God, thank you that you have saved us from having to try to do the works of the law in order to become righteous because we could not, Father, just as... Ethnic Israel was not able to do it. We are not able to do it. But praise the Lord, we are made righteous through your finished work, God, through your life, your death, your resurrection, and through our belief in that, our confession of that, we are saved and we are made righteous, God. Help us to be bold in that. Help us to enter into the throne room of grace with boldness, knowing that we are righteous before you. It is settled. The matter is settled. It is no longer in doubt for those of us who have confessed faith in you, God. Lord, I pray that you would speak that deeply into each of our hearts. In your son's name, amen.